You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. Before we begin today's discussion, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung clans of the Kulin Nations as Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we connect, create, and work. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. We welcome all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and acknowledge the wealth of their creative practice, stretching back to the beginning of the dreaming. We would like to also welcome you to this talk here at M Pavilion this afternoon. I'm Simon Winkler, uh, joined by Lauren Taylor, of course. You can normally hear us uh, presenting on Triple R, Breaking and Entering, which is a new releases music program. But today, we're bringing uh, you the first in a new season of talks events that we've put together for M Pavilion, and it's called Surroundings. And we are here in the surroundings of the Melbourne Zoo, sheltered from the weather by the M Pavilion structure of 2016, which is created by Bijoy Jane of Studio Mumbai. It's a particularly appropriate structure for this month's theme of M Pavilion, which is preservation, the propagation, propagating knowledge, because Studio Mumbai's expression in built form and Bijoy Jane's practice is deeply informed by the concept of law which is defined as a body of traditional knowledge passed on by word of mouth. And the theme of propagating knowledge is such an expansive topic of conversation, rich with possibility. So narrowing down a little today, we're looking at knowledge in the intertwined branches of art, science and nature. What is the art of science education and the place of art making in science? I guess over the years, there have been many fascinating investigations into the links between art and science, and we're continuing to understand more and more the synergistic relationship between the two fields, which were kind of once, I guess, considered to be very separate subjects. Uh, one hour today on a Friday afternoon perhaps isn't enough time to even establish clear definitions of the key terms science, art, nature, knowledge and communication. But I think today with a spirit of optimism we're going to try and uh, forge a path ahead through this topic. We're here to share our panellists' own individual reflections via their work, research and teachings and asking how do science and art intersect in your work? How can art be a vessel of scientific communication? And how does science support artistic endeavour? And how are you combining the fields of science and art into your own practices? It's a privilege to welcome our panel today who are going to be sharing their knowledge with us. And we thought uh, maybe if the panel wouldn't mind briefly introducing yourselves, we might go away and go around this way and start with you, Dimpa. So, um, hi everyone, uh, Owanya, which is welcoming Gubby Gubby. Um, my name is Dimper. Um, I'm, I like to call myself an avant composer and sonic wizard. I'm a queer autistic gubby uh, gubby man and um, I sort of use a lot of keyboard instruments, um, so a bit of synthesizer and also uh, acoustic instruments like accordion to sort of uh, make, make what I call my brain sound or, or sort of uh, what my inner sound is. That's sort of my exploration. Fantastic. Maritza? 
Oh, well, first of all, thank you, Lauren and Simon, for inviting me to this, this uh, panel. I mean, it's quite an ambitious topic to discuss, and um, <laughs> so I'm very grateful to be part of it and see where, where it leads. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in science education in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. Um, but that seems like a, a far too narrow description of what I do, uh, given that I'm sort of self-confessed interdisciplinarian. So I'm interested in philosophy, art, science, um, education, obviously. Um, poetry, you, you name it. So I, I always found that um, uh, education provided an opportunity to be an interdisciplinarian and, and sort of uh, intersect uh, different different disciplines. So that's that's part of my research and my my teaching at uh, Melbourne University. I'm Dr. Jen Martin, and I'm fortunate uh, to get to work sometimes with this lovely gentleman on my left, Maurizio. Uh, so I lead the science communication teaching program at Melbourne Uni, but I started my scientific career as a, a field ecologist, so I feel very at home in the zoo, surrounded by wonderful animals, because I began my life as a scientist because I was just incredibly passionate about nature, and I believe that the only way we could conserve nature was to understand it. But then during my time as a field ecologist, I started to reason that uh, work out that one of the major reasons why we weren't doing better at looking after nature wasn't because we didn't have the knowledge, it was because the scientists weren't able to communicate that knowledge to the people who needed to know it. So about a decade ago, I founded the Science Communication Teaching Program, which focuses on teaching science students across all disciplines at Melbourne Uni how to kind of not sound like scientists and how to explain what they do, uh, whether that be speaking or writing or through art, any number of different ways, what they do. Um, to the world and hopefully to have uh, impact in the world. And I also have the privilege of speaking on Triple R every week uh, as Dr. Jen on Breakfasters and Einstein Agogo and sharing my passion for science communication. And I'm Sally Sherwin, the Director of the Wildlife Conservation and Science Team at Zoos Victoria. So I get to dabble across a range of different sciences relevant to nature and, and human connection to nature. And for that reason, I think it's just, it's in incredibly rewarding. And the people and the different brains that uh, we get exposure to, is, it's amazing. So threat, threatened species biology, social science of behavior change uh, towards conservation, environmental science and animal welfare science. So all really powerful disciplines and growing with our, with our knowledge base there. And so, so excited by this topic because absolutely spot on the, the interface between art and science. We have a lot to learn, I think, from each other. Well, as Lauren said, we are privileged to have you with us all here this afternoon and yeah, honoured to be um, hearing some of the insights that you have on this uh, broad-ranging topic. So perhaps if we could begin, Dimper, you have recently completed and shown a work that we feel very well represents the themes of this talk. So perhaps we could start with uh, the collaborative project, which was part of a program curated, uh, cr created and curated by Yorta Yorta artist Alara Briggs-Patterson. It's called Wuru Wuru, uh, which in the Weirung language means sacred kingfisher and sky. Firstly, could you tell us about your involvement alongside the other participating artists? Um, yeah, so it was, really, it was really deadly for Alara to sort of curate and bring us together um, in such a project especially during the last year because um, due, to, due to COVID and, and such, our communities have been really quite disparate and we haven't been able to travel and be with our mobs. Um, and so it was really great to also, on an artist level, to be able to come together and create again as well. So it was sort of um, on those two levels 
But I'm um, Wuru Wuru, which means um, sacred kingfisher in sky, and I'm um, Woiwurrung. Um, it's actually the sky realm. So uh, you, we sort of believe in a cloud, a cloud layer, and then um, uh, the Woiwurrung and the and the Wurundjeri they believe in a cloud, cloud heaven, and then a tree heaven, and then the and then the stars. Um, and so um, that's where the sacred kingfisher goes up and takes all the spirits. Um, up to that, um, up to that sort of uh, spirit realm, and so then they can then travel sort of across and into, into wherever they go, um, and so it was really exciting for me as well as um, as a Maori person from Queensland, um, because we also have uh, kingfishers as well. They come up at different times of the year, and they're a totem for Gabi Gabi as well. So um, it was really interesting, sort of the connections that were made. Um, even as someone who lives so far away from their, from their homeland and stuff, um, to still be creating stuff about our totems and even our animals because they travel so far across country and that sort of connectedness is really exciting. And uh, I guess what research, Timfer, is necessary for the creation of this particular work? Your contribution was called Migration. How did the project take shape for you? Um, so the project first started with uh, deep consultation with uh, Wurundjeri people and uh, Kulin Nation people, as well as our own knowledge. So we had a uh, we had Yodi Yoda mob, we had Gummy Gummy Gob mob, we had um, Wurundjeri, we had like people from all sorts of places. So sort of uh, bringing that bringing that knowledge together and seeing similarities between that knowledge um, was really interesting. Um, again, the Kingfisher similarities. Um, between Gabi Gabi Mob and, and down here, you know, 2,000 kilometres away. Um, and migration also comes from my own personal migration coming from Gabi Gabi Mob down to here and sort of that same um, migrational path. And the, um, yeah, so, so I began just sort of uh, corroborating knowledge and sharing stories, I think, which is really important, having that space to to share knowledge and, and share and share stories, I think was really important, and so then we could all sort of step into the project on the same page, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and perhaps just briefly before we sort of continue to explore other elements of the conversation, in terms of your musical practice, you described it so poetically before the sonic wizardry and the um, the expression of internal sort of experience into an audible form. We'd love to hear a little bit more about how music as a form of art can be a way of spreading this research and this knowledge of science? Um, well, music is always, they, they're one and the same really. Um, it's why we have song lines that um, tell the story of, of the land and, of, and, um, and also through time, um, which is why even in, in Western culture, we have storytellers and music go one, go one and the same. It's, it's easier to pass on knowledge if it's through song, which is why we have mnemonics and, and things like that to remember. Like it's, it's, it's one and the same, like re remembering things musically and passing on knowledge musically um, has been there, I think, in every single culture since the beginning of time, really. And so um, share, sharing story, I think, is is just a, uh, a caveat of being a musician. Like, um, you don't get to choose if you share stories. This stories sort of choose to be shared, if that makes sense. I guess your own music, Dimper, is driven by 
curiosity? What is it that keeps you curious? Um, I guess kind of it's it's a bit of a personal personal uh, bit of a selfish you know exploration of of someone who's so sort of intersectional and and what I and and the sort of upbringing that I've that I've been brought up brought up brought up in. I, I found that there are people um, very similar, but um, I, I found that I do have quite a unique uh, perspective on a lot of things, and so I'm uh, my my personal endeavour is to find my brand sound like what my brand sounds like, and and I've and in studying music, I found I found stuff that's close but not quite, um, and so and so that's why um, my my own music is sort of trying to explore that, and also like I ex and um, exteriorly. I enjoy uh, exploring serendipity between land and nature, nature and people, people and land. Like it's all and like language and um, and uh, sort of uh, yeah, different different stories and serendipities and uh, phenomena. I think between between people and nature because they're kind of one and the same, and land is same. So it's all kind of a big circle in my mind at least. Yeah. Well, it might be nice to maybe bring uh, Dr. Sally Sherwin in at this point, which we've just spoken to Dimper about uh, his migration project, a way to creatively educate. Could you perhaps share how this resonates with you at Melbourne Zoo? Certainly. I mean, I feel like I could listen to Dimper talk for ages. It's it's incredible. And that oh, I've you. never... I've That's... That process or that thought of um, brain to music is is incredible, and I, yeah, I've never I've never thought of it like that. So thank you, Dimper. From our work, I guess curiosity is the foundation of what we do, and that's what drives a, a lot of our work and a lot of our science and asking new questions. and And every question we that comes to us that we need to, you know, investigate further often ends up. Uh, with another 10, 20 questions that it raises. So it's almost a never-ending tree of, of questions that will continue to, to pop up. And that's, I think, what motivates all of us at, who work in conservation and, and, and across the different disciplines of science as well, just trying to, trying to get a window into the world of nature. And I think for us, we've... You know, we, we practice very um, academic forms of science and that's, you know, that's how a lot of the, the scientists were trained and it's only recently that we've started to um, pause and reflect and think about things from a different perspective and, and start weaving in completely different ways of, of thinking into what we do and that has just resulted in incredible breakthroughs and creativity and just challenged a lot of the norms. So we find it a really exciting time to be working in this field because of the, yeah, the injection of, of different minds and different ways of doing things and, and that's um, I think just so important, especially in the in the field of um, well, all associated disciplines with environmental science and and nature and human human animal connection. Absolutely, and on that subject, because of course, as you say, the work that is being conducted is so critical and important. And when you describe the pausing and the reflecting, we'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe some of the strategies or methods that have come out of that that reflection and how you're employing them at the zoo to communicate and share your findings? 
Sure. So I'd say a, a big growing area for us is, is blending different traditional disciplines of biology and ecology and, and animal sciences together into one. And so drawing on principles from um, a discipline like animal welfare science, which is very focused on individual animals as sentient beings and what they experience and trying to understand from the mind of an individual. And then ecology, as Jen knows, is very much about the big system and the whole connected with individuals within a, a much bigger piece. And so you focus and you come at it from a different lens. So bringing those two disciplines of science together in one team starts challenging uh, completely different ways of, of how we've set up things. So it's, it's led to this new emerging piece of work literally in the last 12 months that we're referring to as, as wildlife welfare. And that's, um, that I think is just gonna be such an exciting piece for us to work to. And then, and then include in that the, the social scientists that work in the team and because you know, we can't really even have serious conversations about conservation without thinking about the human um, because of the interconnection of humans, human behaviour, human attitudes and perceptions, nature and, and wildlife. And so those disciplines together are, yeah, are, are fascinating in how we've started to set up our programs, re-strategize and make sure they're all interconnected and, and talking to each other. I think the a big gap for us is um, what we need to learn from other people on the panel today and, and others is, and, and from the from the art discipline is how to better tell these stories because I think that's a it's a bit of a um, magical power of artists it's so accessible and um, and people love it from uh, all over and different ages whereas science is a bit I don't know it feels a bit exclusive and and not yeah just not as accessible and that's where people <laughs> like Jen come in and, and try and help us better storytell. So that's, yeah, something I'd say is a, is, a, is a gap for us and one that we're really trying to work on in, in better storytelling, some of the exciting things that we get exposure to that we, we really need to start sharing with others. And again, this is maybe more of a side note, but I just wanted to mention as a behavioural scientist, and you mentioned the pause before, of course, 2020 lockdown. I just wanted to know, did you notice any sort of behavioural changes with any of the, the animals during that time? Great. <laughs> yes, great, great question. One that I reckon I've answered 370 times in <laughs> lockdown, but, um, which, which goes to show how, again, curious people are about, hold on, COVID's impacted me personally in this way, I wonder, you know, the world around us, what the impacts are. And so we, being scientists as well and extremely curious, we day one went, right, here's a brilliant experimental setup that we can take advantage of, that we never, the zoo's open 365 days every, every other time. And so to have no visitors in this period was just um, a, a huge opportunity for us to better understand. So we rapidly got our behavioural scientists together to um, start working through who and what approach we wanted to take with analysing animals' response in these dramatically different conditions to what they're normally used to. And our, our strategy we came up with was to, to target the understudied species. So there's actually a whole lot of literature on visitor animal interactions in zoos. Most of them are on primates, big cats, elephants, animals like that. And so we went, we know, we've got a good handle on, on that. That's um, pretty well studied. But what on earth 
do the butterflies think of this? And so that w- that's been my favourite research project in COVID. We've got an incredible amount of data on butterfly response to visitors and no visitors. And then we went, what about the reptiles? How are they changing their utilisation of space and some of the amphibians? So we, we targeted the... And the platypus. And, um, yeah, so we, we went down that path of just going, what... What are our big knowledge gaps? And with such a dramatic change in environment for the animals, this is our opportunity to really understand. So um, there'll be a whole lot of papers coming out in the coming few months. Um, But because our lockdown was so extended in Victoria, we were closed for much longer than we we thought we would be. So we're still just finishing up the visitors back data collection as part of that study. So the write-ups still to come. But yeah, as you'd expect, huge variation in response uh, across different species and then within species across individuals as well. So um, some exciting stories to come out of that that we can share. Looking forward to it very much. And indeed, when we talk about science and communication, Dr. Jen, this is one of your many superpowers, of course. In many ways, your entire career has really been uh, wholly dedicated to investigating, learning, sharing and communicating. We would love to talk to you about the science communication teaching program which you founded and what, uh, what led you to, to found this organisation and could you tell us a little bit about some of the core principles behind the organisation as well? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Simon. Well, I guess I sort of hinted at some of that uh, when I introduced myself earlier. But so imagine uh, me, I'm a PhD student. I'm out there uh, in northeastern Victoria following around a a particular species of possum and trying to understand how they use their habitat and how their behaviour is affected by the habitat that they live in. And I'm loving what I'm doing, even though I had to become nocturnal, which didn't suit my body clock. But, you know, I just loved being immersed in nature. I loved knowing these animals in Ultimately, um, I did all the genetic work, so I knew the family relationships between them. I followed them for years. You know, it was just a really special time. But towards the end of my PhD, I just started to have major doubts about the value of what I was doing. I couldn't see how the knowledge that I had generated was going to change anything. Was it going to stop us chopping down forests? No. Was it going to change the number of species going extinct? No. I just, I couldn't, I just felt really disillusioned and disheartened by it all. And uh, I went straight into a teaching job at Melbourne Uni, which I loved. I love teaching. It's my favourite thing to do. Um, But I just, I kind of looked at this science curriculum and thought, okay, so the thing that's holding me back from from having an impact in the world with my knowledge is that I don't really know how to talk to the people making decisions. I don't know how to talk to the politicians. I don't know how to talk to the land managers. I don't know any of that stuff. And presumably in every discipline of science, there's going to be that problem, that there are decision makers who haven't got any scientific training, are therefore excluded, like Sally said. You know, science, it, the language we use, the jargon we use, the way, the places we publish our knowledge, the, the conferences we go to, you know, it's a little club and you've got to have the science training to be in that club. And yet it struck me that the people making decisions about the future of our planet, many of them weren't in that club. And it seemed like that was going to be true across all disciplines of science. And in the, my first year of teaching at Melbourne Uni, I was lucky enough to to take part in a competition called Fresh Science, which is for early career scientists to learn how to speak to kids, how to go to a pub and give a talk at a pub, how to talk to journalists. And, and I, it was, a, you know, it really was a revelation to me that in this kind of boot camp of learning how to be a better communicator, it struck me that, you know, I know it's a cliche to say, but it wasn't rocket science. Learning how to speak about my research without using any jargon, telling stories, I mean, you know, obviously that's central to our conversation. 
I just needed to be taught how to do it and then I needed to practice it and I needed to be given feedback and then I needed to do it again. And I thought, well, why aren't we doing that for our science students? Because that didn't exist at all at Melbourne Uni. And when I asked the powers that be, excuse me, but where do our science students learn to communicate well? I was told, oh, no, no, they just pick it up by osmosis. And I'm like, well, you don't become a concert violinist just by watching a concert violinist. You actually have to have a teacher and you have to practice bloody hard and get a lot of feedback. So I guess it all started, and, and um, Maurizio was there right from the beginning. It started from a group of us saying, well, we think science students actually need to explicitly be taught these skills and be given the chance to practice. So we bring scientists, science students from every discipline together and make them talk with one another until they can understand what are you doing, why does it matter, what's the problem that you're trying to solve, why should the rest of the world value this work, and what story are you going to tell about it to make it relevant and engaging and interesting to people who, who aren't inherently interested in it. Um, and we're just so fortunate because our students are amazing and we see massive changes in how they go about their work because they interact with each other, because they interact with, each other, uh, with us and they learn about the value of storytelling. Yeah. And I guess in, in addition to the science communication teaching program, places exist now like Science Gallery Melbourne, uh, which explore the collision of science and art. And Jen, I understand you're one of the, the Leonardos. Can you maybe tell us also why places like this are important? Uh, I just, I'm so excited about Science Gallery Melbourne. I just can't wait till it opens and we can all just hang out there forever. Um, so way back in the day, it's, well, I don't know. Has it, Morris, do you know, has it been set back by COVID? It's meant to be opening this year. So I'm hoping it still is. But, you know, I was on the, um, the working group, I don't know how long ago, with this plan that if there's going to be a science gallery in the Southern Hemisphere, Melbourne wants it. And, you know, it, it actually happens. So I guess, I mean, science gallery epitomises what I think everyone on this panel believes, and that is that people are inherently curious. People want to think and ask questions about themselves, about the world they live in, about what they're surrounded by. And art... And, and, you know, also music and, you know, these are the ways we provoke people to connect with difficult, challenging, exciting, interesting questions, far more than me saying, here's the latest paper from Science Magazine, read this. You know, for some people that'll be incredibly exciting and provoking, but for, for the vast majority of people that'll be gobbledygook that means nothing to them, whereas art and music can immediately draw people in. So I, I just think Science Gallery is amazing. I was really lucky last year, no, now the year before, to go to Science Gallery London. And I don't know, I just think Science Gallery is a very, very powerful model. It's going to be great. Well, we, we cannot wait to be there either. And it's just so thrilling to hear you all speaking so passionately about the place of, yeah, the, the intersection of science, art and communication or all of your work. And hopefully we do get that chance to all hang out <laughs> at Science Gallery indeed when it is open um, for everybody. Maurizio, you have a very unique perspective in this discussion, um, having vast experience across the fields of science and the arts. We'd love at this point of the conversation to sort of um, ask you, in your view, what is the role of artistic practice in science communication, climate science and education? Um. Yeah, it, or, I guess in order to answer that question, I, you know, I'd like to sort of, sort of draw on uh, previous speakers. I'm very glad to Dimfant, Sally and Jen to, to sort of, you know, um, uh, emphasise the importance of uh, storytelling and curiosity and the role of communication in um, 
in both promoting curiosity, but also getting those stories right and, and having those uh, expressed in a way that conveys not just information, but conveys something of the feeling of, of that work. And so I think that um, if one thinks about the, the sort of history of science, it is characterized by our relationship to knowledge and the way that we go about uh, representing that knowledge. And so a large part of, of um, science communication is about how you represent that, how you take scientific understanding, uh, the results of science, the implications of science, and telling a story which resonates with, with a particular audience. Um, but I think as Sally has pointed out, another major component of, of science is curiosity, which is, speaks to our relationship to the unknown. And I think that's uh, something which is much harder to represent scientifically. It's much harder to have a model or a picture of what is unknown. Um, and therefore, what art plays, the role that art plays, is actually in expressing that, not representing that unknown and our relationship with the known and the unknown, but expressing it. And so I think, as, as Dimper put, put, getting your brain out into, into a different form is not just, uh, not just getting out what you know, but also your relationship to what you don't know. And so the idea of, of sharing, sharing knowledge is important, but also sharing what we don't know. Um, and of course, that's been very crucial to uh, lots of debates around COVID, for example, or climate change and major issues like that. Um, so, I, so I feel that art, uh, the relationship that art, uh, what the, the role that art can play in um, both science communication, in science practice, um, and in education is, is around that expressive aspect of it. Um, and, um, and part of that expression is not just conveying what we know and what we don't know, but also um, what what matters to us, you know, what is significant to us. And I think that's the thing that I've been drawn to in my in my research and my teaching and my practice. And so just as a quick side note, it also seems like there's a, a latitude and a tolerance there of, as you say, the mystery and the experiential that's difficult to, to translate. And so with art's embracing of that, that's something that it can kind of then uh, convey to science as well. Yes, and it also, I mean, I guess it also highlights a, a a, 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 would I, no, I could call it a danger, but perhaps it's, it's just um, a, an aspect of science communication education that we have to keep in mind. And that is that we can sometimes think about um, art as serving um, a very practical function in communication or education. Um, that it's, it's, its power is in its utility to translate, say, science into something that's accessible. Um, and so, uh, that sometimes obscures or sidelines that notion of the ineffable, the intangible, the things that that we can we know, but no, not not know in a sort of cognitive, you know, intellectual way, but know through our bodies, through our experiences, through our immersion in the world, and so on. So I think it's very important that 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 uh, when we think about the relationship between art and science or education or anything else, that we, we recognise that, that in some ways it's the other side to the coin of our very modern preoccupation with knowing, doing, uh, understanding, rather than experience. Yeah. And also the production of, of objects. The, right. uh, yes, exactly. And I think that's, that, that, um, uh, that's another 
point where we, we have to be very careful because both scientists and artists produce objects, have artefacts. Mm. That uh, uh, scientific production is artificial. Um, and sometimes they're very tangible bits of technology and sometimes they're intellectual creations, they're models, they're analogies, they're metaphors which are very powerful. And so we have to be careful to kind of um, orientate, orientate ourselves towards not just the logical content of those ideas but the kind of expressive content. And I guess, Maritza, you've got a very unique perspective in this discussion because uh, as well as having a career in science, you're also an artist as well. How have you balanced both an artistic and a, a scientific career and maybe how do the two practices support each other? Um, it's a very good question because I was actually speaking to someone the other day about this, this very, very question about, um, so how do you do your art and how, how do you do your science and how do you do your philosophy and how, you know, is there a relationship between them all? And, and I think, you know, I thought long and hard about it and I thought the connection between them was around um, the spatial that, that I, you know, this applies to, to my own personal reflection on my, my practice, but it's about... Um, feeling the sort of shape of things, the shape of ideas, um, almost to the point where it's almost sort of an architectural understanding of ideas, of, of feelings and so on. And so I, I, I so sort of reflecting on my scientific practice when I was um, working in astronomy, that um, understanding space in a kind of abstract way and feeling your way around something which is beyond ordinary experience. I mean, you can't touch anything. You just have to sort of gaze at the at the universe uh, and, and try to make sense of it. That that having, uh, developing a kind of um, a spatial relationship with, with those ideas really helped. And the same was true of, of my sculptural practice or my art practice or even the, the, the kind of the way I shape the architecture of my language in, in sort of scientific papers or philosophical papers. And so I think... Um, so I think that's what unifies them. So I think it's more a question of a, a sensibility towards or an orientation towards the, the, the spatial or the... the, the it's, it's almost like, um, I mean, as Dimper said, you know, trying try to get your brain out into the world into a form that's, that may be musical and expressive. For me, it's, it's actually having to ma manipulate the world in order to, to get that, that out. Yeah. We wanted to ask you a, a question about one of your exhibitions from a few years ago. Um, which you have sort of addressed in, in some of the answers already uh, in terms of, uh, I suppose, the ineffable. But I guess it's a, it's a concept or a word that we thought really resonated in the context of this discussion. Um, the exhibition Flow um, at Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick of 2017, we were reading the catalogue essay and there were a few lines that really did strike us as very apt. So please forgive us while we sort of quote... Um, Flow, in all of its many and varied manifestations, marks out nothing less than the gestures of the universe, and these gestures are musical. Flow, as a cosmic musical gesture, requires attunement. We have to orient ourselves to flow that we might learn when and whether it is necessary to be in resonance or dissonance with it. Um, flow is a being's extension into the space and time of the other, and then concludes with flow then calls to all and is available to all, whether through the works of the poet, the choreographer, the artist, or the scientist. Flow is the medium that allows us to define and redefine our relationships with otherness, ethical, ecological, and cosmic. There's so much to explore there in, in that sort of uh, extract, but 
perhaps we could ask all of you about this concept of flow and uh, how, how you, it resonates with you as sort of scientific and artistic practitioners. Maybe Dimper, if you would like to. Um, for me, that sort of flow, I consider it mad of magic. I mean, um, sort of uh, uh, magic is very closely related to curiosity um, as well that we've been talking about, as well as like the space between and also like the known and unknown and how to express that. Um, and so flow uh, is something that doesn't necessarily come um, from like some form of other spirit like um, artists in the past have, have attributed to, such as Bach and Mozart being like this divine being sort of brought this music upon me. I believe that sort of my flow comes from, from, an, earthly, from an earthly thing where I've obviously practiced and, and I have a skill and I have a language that I use, which is music um, and a whole different sort of way of thinking. Um, and so flow... Um, yeah, is is something that um, comes from like the world around me, rather than um, sort of like an inner spirit or or like an inner inner self or like a cosmic or um, sort of religious uh, being, um, and that that's sort of related to nature and things like that. Like I get a lot of inspiration from nature and flow from nature as well. Um, and like a lot of the sounds that I try and create, I try and create um, sounds from from my environment as well as like my environment growing up in Queensland and things like that, especially birdsong that we're hearing now in the lovely zoo, like the sort of um, the mimicry and, and, and the sounds of the place, which is which is song lines really, like this, the sound of the place is sort of uh, what I get my flow from, I think. Perhaps if we could extend it to the other panelists as well, if you would, yeah, wouldn't mind responding to that, that idea as well. Um, that was really interesting listening to you, Dimper, because I can very much relate. For me, flow is not so much uh, coming from inside me, but it's coming to me connecting with what's around me. So two times uh, or two experiences in my life where I find myself in flow very easily. Uh, one is when I'm running. So I do a lot of running. And for me, when I'm running, I'm not in my head. I'm connected to the world around me. So if I'm running along the Yarra, I'm, I'm with the Yarra and I'm feeling, you know, who Melbourne is and who Melbourne used to be and who Melbourne might become. And if I'm running trails, I'm, I'm part of the landscape of the trees and the birds. So for me, running, I think running... Uh, allows me to get my brain to stop enough <laughs> that I'm connected to the world. But the other time I feel in flow is actually when I'm storytelling because I'm connecting with an audience, which I think is why for me uh, um, our lockdown was really hard because I love teaching. There is nothing I love more than being in front of a group of students and telling stories and feeling connected with them and, and genuinely making you know, connections with people and seeing faces respond and having conversations. And that's really hard to do over Zoom. Or, you know, equally speaking about science on the radio, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about a story and how can I best craft this story for this audience in a way that will resonate and be meaningful and, and they'll remember, for me, that's flow. That's a great gift to share with others, that's for sure. For me... I'd say my conceptualization of flow is is based on something we've studied in the like the, the psychological state of of flow. So almost a bit 
opposite to Jem, but very much influenced by the external environment. The so so coming from within that that psychological state, and it's it's interesting because we we can seek flow and that and that state. It's it's recognised as a positive emotion and something that we strive for in animal welfare science as well. And so it's, it's hard to find evidence of it, but one way we study it is if an animal or a human equally has a positive experience um, or something enlightening or anything positive, you know, at the start of the day, for example, then there's potential for them to experience positive flow throughout the day. And then that we use as an indicator of positive welfare and a positive state. And we want to encourage that and achieve that. So we, we constantly study different individuals, different experiences, and then, and then how they respond throughout the day. And so that, I think, trying to understand it, look for it, get insight into it in the animal kingdom helped me focus on my own concept of flow and trying to encourage more of that in, in myself. And that was, I think, a game changer for me in COVID and the stress associated with what we were all going through um, in that period and just, um, you know, si sitting back and going, right, what, what, and I ran a little, obviously, a little experiment in myself, what was the most effective activity for me to do at the start of the day to then experience that positive flow and then what gives that greater length of, of that state as well throughout the day. And so I found a few different strategies and um, and it's things like, you know, a beautiful meditation at the start of the day or a, or a, a walk in nature or some kind of some kind of activity. Or um, on some days I just felt like I needed to get out and burn in and it's that state throughout the day. And what about yourself, Maurizio, as the artist that had to respond to that particular topic? How, do you, how does it unite the scientific and the, the artistic uh, well, well there's, there's, there's several ways, but one, one, one thing that comes to mind is, is perhaps a, an historical philosophical point, and that is that um, prior to Socrates, um, uh, nature was considered um, something that... It, that for, uh, nature was conceived of in terms of this idea of phusis, which is this, uh, this idea of being carried away with... Um, um, Bert Dreyfus, the uh, American philosopher, calls it a whooshing. You know, you're you're carried away by the moment, and and uh, like in a wave, you're not really at the you're not really thinking about it. It's not a conscious activity, but the experience of of the situation in which you find yourself means that you are um, in a reciprocal relationship with your doing. It's affecting you, and you're affecting affecting it it it. And in the in pre-Socratic Greece, you had the pantheon of the gods, and so you would be almost possessed through forces by that. And so, um, so in that sense, nature as the norm is one in which you don't have this conscious reflection uh, analysis on what's going on. Um, that came much later with the, with the sort of, the, the, sort of um, uh, the sort of classical Greeks who said, oh, now we have to think about things and now we've got these ideas, these forms in our head and so on. And so uh, our ordinary experiences in education, in nature, in our relationship with others is in this uh, space of flow or phusis. But we've also become accustomed over hundreds of, and if not thousands of years to think about that, to reflect upon that in a conscious way. 
Um, and so now the, the table has been turned in some way that we've inverted it. Now thinking is considered the important normal thing and that everyday flow or experience is abnormal, whereas educators and, and, and um, educational psychologists recognise the importance of valuing that notion of flow, uh, whether that's someone who's doing an experiment in a lab or someone who's per, you know, performing art. Um, and it also involves the body in a way that the mind, it involves the body uh, in a way that is undervalued uh, in sort of, con, sort of contemporary education. So I, I, so I think a kind of return to that uh, is, is possible. Um, be yeah, beautifully um, put. One thing that I guess Lauren and I were particularly fascinated by when we were approaching this topic of conversation was was the art of science communication. And both you, uh, Sally, and, and Dr. Gemma, talking a little bit before about how it is that you are creating an impact on audiences that you're educating through your, your work. And Dr. Gemma, we would love to talk to you a little bit more in detail of something you raised earlier about the, the principles of learning that you're teaching your students. And even on a weekly basis, when you're educating listeners on the radio of a particular sort of important finding, are there sort of core elements or, yeah, how, how do you sort of approach the, the process of, of communicating something which is by its nature quite complicated or abstract? So I think there are absolutely um, principles, no question, and these are probably not in any particular order, but I think uh, as a science communicator, you have to start with uh, two big questions. Firstly, what's the goal of, your, of what you're trying to do, of your activity, uh, and who's the audience that you're trying to connect with? Because if you haven't, if you assume that your audience is just like you, uh, you're probably, you're probably going to fail before you're going to begin. Because particularly if you're the scientist and your audience doesn't have science training, it's highly unlikely that you're going to manage to connect with them and uh, encourage them to engage with what you're talking about. Because what's going to be interesting and relevant to them could be very different. I mean, of course, there are, there are things that you know, all humans are curious about, but the sort of science you might be wanting to communicate may not be one of those types of science. So I think being very clear on what your goal is, you know, are you trying to convince somebody of something? Are you trying to educate somebody? Are you just trying to get them to go, wow, that's really amazing. I never thought about that before. And for our students, you know, it, it may be really um, quite straightforward. It may be that they need funding for their research and they need to convince somebody that what they're doing is solving a very important problem and is worthy, worthy of funding. So there's all of that kind of big picture stuff. Once you actually think about how you're going to communicate your message, that's when it comes down to really crafting something that is going to... Um, you know, pique somebody's interest. So that's where storytelling becomes very important. That's where it becomes important to think about how something is going to be relevant to this particular audience, what's, what's um, going to be meaningful for them, what questions might they have that you can answer. I mean, there's some really good research when it comes to climate change, which I'm sure um, Morris knows more about than I do, but essentially one of the absolute strongest um, or most powerful things we can do in terms of changing the future uh, of, the, of the climate change trajectory that we're on is simply to have conversations with people and a lot of people shy away from having conversations about climate change because they feel like they're not experts but the research shows you we don't need to be an expert you really just climate change is real it's it's happening because of humans you know really basic information but it comes down to personal connection so I guess what we're trying to teach our students really is is the humanity of storytelling the fact that a good story can bring anybody into a conversation 
um, and that comes down to knowing who they are and what's important to them and what's what's relevant to them. I mean, there's lots of other practicalities of what a lot of what we do is teach our students how to not use jargon. Um, <clears throat> how to not uh, focus on the nitty gritty and the detail. You know, as scientists, we're very into details. A, a more general audience probably doesn't care at all about the details. They just want to know what's, what's, you know, what have you found out and what does it mean? So there's a lot of distilling messages and leaving out details that aren't important. But yeah, I think that's, that's some of the main things. Morris, what else? Many years ago, we came up with five essentials of good science communication in, in collaboration with a couple of other colleagues. What are some of the others? <laughs> now you've put me on the spot. <laughs> I don't usually think about this until five minutes before I it was do a, the first it, lecture. It was a decade ago that we we conceived of these principles. Yeah, I think one of the I think one of the one of the um, one of the sort of key elements is accuracy because I think that there's Thank you. The, yeah because yes. I think that um, there's a sense that if you're part of a scientific community that you have signed up one way or another and committed yourself to the practices of of science. And so with that comes the responsibility to convey that understanding in a very accurate way. Um, and so to your point about detail, uh, part of the, the, the challenge of science communication is if you, you feel, sometimes feel in order to, to, uh, to make sure you're accurate, you put more, more and more information to qualify everything, which is of course part of the scientific method, is to kind of make sure that every claim you make is supported in some way. Um, so there, there's a kind of balance to be struck there, but um, but I think it, it, that really has come up as a major issue in well, firstly in topics like climate change, um, as the rain comes down here, um, but but also in terms of say what we've experienced in the last year around the science of of, um, of the COVID pandemic is thinking about what constitutes um, scientific accuracy, and so. Um, um, and, and I think the way scientists have approached that and their conversations with, um, say, policymakers or, you know, the general public really, um, I guess, has raised the, 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 um, the different um, relationship that, that uh, scientific experts have to that notion of accuracy. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's probably fairly poor that it didn't immediately come to my mind. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges for scientists in becoming great communicators is this balance between absolutely our first responsibility has to be accuracy. You can't tell a good story just because you want to tell a good story if it's not true. You know, that's absolutely essential. But, but the details become problematic. So it's teaching our students just how to get this balance between you have to be 100% truthful but you're going to have to work out which details are relevant and which ones aren't. And I think that's very difficult. And we've talked about being good communicators. How can we be better learners? Maybe I'll direct that to you, Jen. Good question. I, I think open-mindedness and um, challenging ourselves to, yeah, to have that pause moment and go, right, uh, you know, because we do often in, in science, we have very structured processes and approaches and, and guidelines and things to follow. So having that moment and go, actually, you know, is this the right approach for this? What else, who else could I be asking from completely different perspectives? And a bit of a, um, a, a, a bit of a strategy we use as well to, to, to sometimes um, 
get our creativity sparked back up again and, you know, put us, get ourselves outside of this very structured tunnel vision focus of, of science is, um, is ask the kids. They often have some just outrageous ideas and, and thought processes and a key part of um, what we do in conservation is to, to work with the kids and, and have, have them then go out and be an army of conservation activists and, and spread the message. And they're, they're an incredibly powerful group of, of humans, the young people, and they come up with just some, some amazing ideas that help us think outside the box as well as um, remind us of the importance of curiosity and being open-minded and, and learning, the joy of learning. And it is actually, it again, I just keep coming back to the psychology of it, learning new things does actually um, lead to, it, it is quite a positive welfare state and positive experience too. You get the sense of, of value and empowerment and achievement. And so I think once you once you kind of break down that barrier of it and then you get that experience again, it can be yeah, very rewarding and then quite addictive to want to know more and learn more and open your mind further. So I think they can help us take that, that first step outside of our, our minds. And I guess Dr. Jen and Maurizio, you both have direct connections to academia, but I just wanted to quickly ask what impacts might the recent uh, doubling of uh, fees of, for arts degrees, uh, which is sort of seen as, I guess, non-essential, <laughs> that's been the quote, how is that going to have an impact on science and scientists and how is it going to impact critical thinking and creativity? Maurizio, you look like you're pondering that question. Um, the short answer is I don't know, <laughs> um, because uh, one thing I've learned about sort of education is that the, the, the downstream effects take decades to, to kind of show up, um, and one doesn't quite know what will happen because people adapt to the, the new climate, the, and, and so, um, so I, I mean, I sort of feel like there is tremendous resilience amongst young people anyway. Um, uh, in terms of thinking about their futures and 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 so on, and that that provides a um, a real stimulus to do other things and reimagine what that education is and what they want to get from it, uh, and not just in a kind of you know value for money uh, uh, um, uh, perspective, but but thinking what is it the value of that education and can I find it somewhere else? And if the universities are not going to provide that or are, or are hamstrung by that, they'll find other places to do that or they'll generate those spaces themselves. And so, I, I'm, so I'm much more optimistic and, and think that the, within the next 50 years or so, there'll, there'll be a great shift in sort of education because um, education is generally a very conservative uh, sort of um, discipline and practice. Um, I often feel like what counts as education today is the sort of the, the bad, you know, when, when as they say, you know, generals are fighting the last war, <laughs> and and so very often what we're doing in education today is is um, what was relevant years ago. Uh, just by way of example, um, education is still very much text based, um, whereas we're moving back into a kind of oral tradition, a visual tradition, an almost an artistic poetic tradition of conversation, of exchanging ideas in, in other forms. And so I think that's where it will go. So, so I'm quietly confident that despite these policy changes, that the climate will still be very good for, for those both in the sciences and the humanities and, and social sciences. Absolutely. And speaking also on, on the future, I suppose um, we can uh, speculate um, a little bit as to 
I suppose how some of the the problems, as you say, will will unfold, and and sort of what the creative solutions will be to to issues that humanity are facing. Something that's come through in this conversation a couple of times are the the themes of climate change and also conservation. And I guess would be kind of curious before the the conversation concludes to ask for perhaps some some more reflections from from all of the panelists about how art and science are working together in this in these spaces to potentially kind of offer some some paths forward through these these uh, issues um, perhaps Sally would you mind offering some thoughts yeah I think um, I think we've been trying for a long time to to tackle climate change with here are the facts here's the science look at all the data it's obvious <laughs> and um, that obviously hasn't got cut through and and fast enough action and it's such a it's yeah I mean it's such a it's such an incredible topic to try and unpack and understand why that's that's the case but I think it's pretty safe to say that we're not going to win this one with just hard facts and science because it is a very complicated complicated science as well so it's time now you know given how urgent the issue is and and how much of an impact it is having on the world around us, humans and animals, and broader than that, and and to to engage different strategies. And like Jen was saying, look at um, better, more compassionate storytelling. And and um, I, I read some some really interesting research that was done on. And this is peer-reviewed literature that <laughs> um, I wish was was communicated more broadly about. Um, what gets the cut through in action for climate change. And, and I was looking into it from, because I'm really fascinated by the concept of empathy, of uh, what, you know, what stimulates empathy in, in humans, because we saw it triggered heavily in the bushfires with our native wildlife um, clearly suffering to a, a huge extent. And there was a fascinating paper I read on um, how to get action in climate change, and they did, and randomised controlled study with different messages that they tested um, to see who was going to act and, and change their behaviour according to the different research. And they, they presented the, you know, the hard facts and, the, you know, it's very convincing when you look at the data compared to uh, a message trying to trigger empathy for the environment as a whole and, and saying the environment and nature is, is suffering. And then they went, here's this individual polar bear, I can't remember what they named him, um, and they had that, you know, that horrific photo of ice and they said climate change is causing suffering in this individual animal and that was by far the most powerful message that got cut through and I think it's that, yeah, I think we need to better understand within humans and the, and the psychology of humans and that what stimulates that, um, that action in us and then use that through expressing art and and use the science of psychology and climate science to then um, have art help us tell that story. But I think the key part to empathy in, in us triggering empathy and, you know, using suffering in, in that context is we need to give people then hope. You can't just say, because otherwise you, you completely shut down and you can't look at it anymore and it's a horrible thing and it gets you in a in a bad cycle of it's overwhelming and all too hard. So you need to pair empathy with action and hope and and that's, I think, a key part that we haven't really, really had much uh, cut through with yet, but that might be the next the next stage of how we can have conversations like Jen was saying with with people. 
How about you, Dimpa? What's the place of empathy in, in your practice as a musician? Um, well, empathy is huge, you know. Um, even even now as we're in the zoo where we just got a whole, big, whole bunch of rain today, we're literally watching the steam come off the roads. These storms are remnants of Queensland and, and the monsoon seasons that happen up there. And, um, you know, climate change at least is happening. It's very real to our communities. It's happening already. We have... Um, our islander, our islander mob already suing the government because their homelands already like flooding and and all this sort of stuff. And um, perhaps the same route of um, of what Sally was talking about, the kind of empathy campaigns and things like that, could really be useful because people don't know what's happening and people um, often skew skew our knowledge and um, like to sort of uh, what's the word? I guess kind of censor censor our knowledge and stuff or use our knowledge against us which is sort of uh, particularly in the past couple of centuries has been sort of very impactful for mob and um, and, and we understand that most people have empathy for our communities and, and for our um, and for our communities but like there people don't know what to do about it because um, yeah because there's just so much there already that people don't or don't know about and people are still learning um, in terms of empathy in, in music, it's like it's it's hugely important and it's incredibly important for our communities, especially in terms of healing and and in terms of um, yeah, getting knowledge out there as well and and for um, and and for getting you know our story out there and for people other people to feel empathy and things like that um, towards you know towards us. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of hope in our communities at the moment, but um, we're you know we're trying and um, yeah, trying to heal through heal through uh, our connection to nature and and art and nature um, is is science. You know, um, for example, the the Kulin Nation and the clans around Port Phillip Bay. You know, it was discovered that that Port Phillip Bay used to be land, right? That wasn't discovered by. Western scientists until fairly recently, I say recently, in the past couple of hundred years, but if you'd ask, you know, mob just down the road, they'd be like, oh no, you know, um, this is where these clans used to used to battle and the, and the gods were like, no, and then separated them via the Port Phillip Bay, you know. Um, so there's stories everywhere like that. Um, and there's trepidation because, because our stories have been used so much against us, and which is why art and also science is very important because it allows us to put our stories in our own hands and then um, we're, able, we're able to tell the stories um, in our own way and not have it like skewed or, or changed or kind of um, used against us. So it's really uh, liberating. Well, there's obviously yeah, so much to talk about on this topic. I feel like we might be running out of time. I don't have a, uh, the time in front of me, but do you have your... Oh, yes, we're over time. Uh, well, we want to say a big thank you to our guests for sharing uh, your thoughts on how uh, science and art uh, interact in your work, among other things today. Uh, Dimpa, Mar Dr. Maurizio Toscano, Dr. Jen Martin and Dr. Sally Sherwin, thank you so much for being part of uh, this M Pavilion talk at the zoo. It's going to be a very interesting recording with lots of bird noises and <laughs> dinosaurs <laughs> behind us today, but thank you so much. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for Thank having you us. Both. Thank you. You're listening to an Empavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season.
for more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.